This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library Main Branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. All right, everybody. Um, you know, sometimes I say that this is a very special episode of Unsupervised Learning. Uh, but today, this is a very special episode. Uh, the guests that I have today, I'm actually sitting in the same room with them. I am in a studio, and we are recording this, and I have two guests instead of one. So we have multiple dimensions in which it is special. I am here with uh, Dr. Alex Young of UCLA and Dr. James Lee of University of Minnesota. Um, I've known these guys for a while. I've read their work. Uh, they actually um, they, they address a lot of the same questions, and they are exploring the same domain, but they come from different educational backgrounds, different disciplinary backgrounds. Uh, James has a, a PhD in, 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 out of psychology, even though he's, he's a behavior geneticist and a psychometrician, and, and Alex is a uh, mathematical geneticist, I would say, statistical geneticist. And he is also looking at some of the same characteristics and traits. And what we're going to be talking about uh, today, um, before I let them introduce themselves more fully, and uh, Alex, you can just talk about your general research and like what you're interested in, and James, you go. Uh, we are going to be talking mostly about quantitative genetics uh, and complex traits. And I want to do a deep dive and talk to these guys about this topic because people are interested in this stuff, but they don't often um, enlighten themselves on the foundations of how it works and how the traits that they're so interested in emerge out of complex developmental, genetic, just overall biological process, as well as the environmental inputs that we all know about, right? So um, Alex, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and then James, you can go. Hi, I'm Alex Young. I'm a statistical geneticist at UCLA. And yeah, as Razib was saying, my background is more in uh, math and statistics. I did my PhD at Oxford in statistical genetics. I also lived and worked in Iceland for a bit with uh, Decode, which got me interested in issues around the genetics of education, which led me to my current role, which is part of the SSGAC, which is Social Science Genetic Association Consortium. So we're interested in outcomes that are relevant for the social sciences, such as education. So that's been one of the, one of the phenotypes that, that we've been focusing on. James. So I'm James Lee. I'm an associate professor of psychology at the University of Minnesota, specializing in behavioral genetics, uh, which I didn't always know I was going to do. Um, I ended up at Harvard, and um, um, they didn't even have behavioral genetics there. Um, but that was okay at the time, because I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to specialize in. Uh, for a while, I actually thought I was interested in AI, interestingly enough. <laughs> but um, it's become very topical, but... Um, but I've sort of stumbled into genetics, and I pretty quickly realized that at that time, Cambridge, Massachusetts was a good place to be if you're going to be stumbling into those things. Yeah. And um, then I did a postdoc at the National Institutes of Health um, with Carson Chow, um, where uh, we worked together on certain issues in statistical genetics and population genetics. And then I ended up at the University of Minnesota, which is well known for, among other things, uh, all kinds of behavioral genetic studies, including studies of monozygotic twins separated. Yeah, the, so the Minnesota twins, uh, 
mm-hmm. project is pretty well known. I think a lot of the listeners and viewers are going to know about that. Um, so I, I want to start off by kind of um, talking about what we're going to talk about in terms of what it comes out of, and you guys can jump in after I'm done in terms of like you can take issue with it. You know, disagreement's fine. Were, were you going to say something? No, you no, good? Okay, no. you're just looking at me. Looking at me, James. Um, so, uh, you know, so we're going to talk about quantitative genetics. And a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in that I talk about is, you know, population genetics. And how do these two differ? They obviously overlap a lot. They've kind of just fused today uh, for various reasons. But I do think that they start at different positions and have different origins. And what I would say with uh, quantitative genetics is, you know, statistical genetics, it comes out of biometry. Um, it's a very empirical field in origin uh, with animal breeding and whatnot, whereas population genetics is basically the fusion of Mendelism uh, with evolutionary biology and, uh, you know, complex, you know, you know, inheritance patterns and whatnot. And so I think of population genetics is more as construction of models which allow you to deduce outcomes and a lot of hypothesis testing. So obviously the most famous one is the Hardy-Weinberg, you know? But, I mean, coalescent, for example, is another model. And so these are these explicit formal models that you manipulate algebraically, you test, and, uh, you know, they give you a range of outcomes that you can see empirically if the outcomes are matched. And, you know, stylized fact is like, Population genetics is, you know, basic evolutionary biology, evolutionary genetics is the study of changing allele frequencies over time. And how do those allele frequencies change based on the parameters in your models, right? So quantitative genetics is somewhat different because uh, I feel that originally, obviously, it was um, gene blind. It was pre-genetic in terms of pre-Mendelian. So, you know, you're talking about correlations between relatives. You're talking about distributions within populations. You're talking about distributions within populations of, say, breeding animals and how you get the best outcome out of that breeding animal. So quantitative genetics uh, traditionally has been a tool within the agricultural genetics tradition. Now, today, it's all a little different because with genomics, it's all kind of fuses together because genetics is genetics fundamentally, even if there are different subdomains and disciplines based on the tools we use, the traditions we come from, the ultimate, the, what you're actually studying is, is pretty much the same. And now that we have genomics, we have the total genomic information and we have the computational tools to make the analysis tractable, population and quantitative genetics are kind of fusing uh, through genomics and population genomics. That's the way that I tend to think about it. So today, you know, we're going to be talking about quantitative traits. So that means that we will have in mind uh, polygenic characteristics, for example, uh, complex traits. We have these traits in mind, but uh, fundamentally they go back to Mendelism as well. They go back to the genes and the segregation of individual loci. So their basis is ultimately population genetic as well, even though we're not focusing on that under the distribution. That's, that's what I would say in terms of what we're talking about and where we're coming at it. Like, what would you guys have to say to that sort of summary? Well, I think... Both fields actually sort of trace back in many ways to R.A. Fisher's paper in 1918, which is what unified Mendelism and biometrics. So biometrics traces back to Francis Galton, cousin of Charles Darwin's work, looking at how the heights of offspring correlate with their parents' heights, which is where we get the term regression from. And this was something concerned with the inheritance of phenotypes um, continuous characteristics and all of the statistical methods that were developed mainly by Galton's protege, Carl Pearson. And Fisher in 1918 unified that, that perspective, which was looking at continuous variation, with what had been 
rediscovered in Mendelian genetics about doing crosses of different plants or animals and how discrete traits are inherited based on on these Mendelian factors, which we didn't have the, the modern concept of, of, a, of a gene then. Yeah. Um, so Fisher in 1918 showed how the correlations between relatives that formed the basis of biometrics could actually be the result of Mendelian inheritance of many different um, many different alleles across the genome that were segregating independently. So independent alleles could generate continuous variation that had correlations that matched what were being observed in biometrics. And I think that Fisher's perspective there didn't really probably see a real distinction between population and and quantitative genetics. Yeah. Um, and maybe we're going back to that now. They sort of diverged to some degree because one was more concerned with practical things like how do we breed more profitable cows? <laughs> and the other one was uh, population genetics was, was uh, concerned with sort of longer run, more abstract evolutionary kind of ideas. I don't know if you agree, James. Uh, yeah, I actually do. Um... I think you could trace the origins of quantitative genetics to Ronald Fisher and his pathbreaking 1918 paper, and also papers that came out very soon after by Sewell Wright, addressing similar topics, correlations between relatives and inbreeding and things like that using path analysis. So neither Fisher nor Wright thought of themselves as I'm, I'm this and not that. I'm in this box here. Um, Sewell Wright especially was interested in. Uh, genetics in mammals, uh, uh, physiological genetics, enzymes. Uh, there was nothing in genetics as it existed at the time that he wasn't interested in or working on. Um, but what soon happened was that um, as the subject developed in America, uh, I mean, this is something interesting about the field of genetics as a whole. Um, genetics, I think, is the first science where a lot of its growth and maturation actually occurred in America. Mm-hmm. Like, for example... With the, the fly room. The fly room in Columbia. Yes. Right? Uh, okay. Figures like Nettie Stevens and uh, Clarence McClung and uh, uh, Thomas Hunt Morgan. Yeah. Um, and Sewell Wright. And, um, and basically, a lot of these people um, were often working, surprisingly, not at places like Harvard or Columbia, although some did. But often at um, like flagship public universities, Ag- actuals. That, yes, didn't Blaine Sue Wright didn't to, even have a PhD? I think isn't that right? Uh, that may be. Yeah, there was a time when you didn't need to have a PhD. Well, I don't think R. A. Fisher did either. Um, <laughs> did he? Did he? Not? I don't think R. A. Fisher yeah, did either. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, 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 at that time they just sort of just said, just just well, get the shit you, done. <laughs> you, you you clearly can do this, so go ahead and and, and do it. Um, That's Doctor Fisher to you. No. <laughs> So, um, so um, like, for example, Walter Sutton, as soon as um, uh, Mendel's discoveries were uh, rediscovered, he immediately, he was a, a guy who, I think was at the University of Kansas at the time, Yes. immediately proposed that, I think, actually, these chromosomes are the carriers of Mendel's hypothetical particles, because... They have all the required properties. They come in pairs, they segregate independently, and, and so on. Um, and so the similar thing happened with quantitative genetics. It got really picked up 
but people working in America associated with agriculture. Yes. Um, Iowa State people. So yes, Jay Lush, who yeah. was introduced to genetics when he was a student at Kansas State. Okay. Uh, then he became a professor at, uh, uh, at the University of Iowa. Um, and he uh, commuted to Chicago, where um, Sewell Wright was a professor at the time. Um, so Sewell Wright was a very theoretical person, and he didn't uh, think of himself as directly working toward anything applied. Um, but Jay Lush, his main interest was animal breeding. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and so he uh, audited, uh, although he was himself a professor at the time, he audited Sewell Wright's course, um, was kind of mesmerized and inspired and right then became his lifelong hero uh, so anyway he came back to Iowa he started a program in quantitative genetics there um, he was the one who came up with the term I think heritability which mm. maybe we'll talk about more later with yeah that we means. will uh, he was the one who came up with the breeders equation although Fisher already freely made use of this concept clearly Often Fisher would just assume something and then freely just talk about it verbally, and then later someone would make an equation about yeah. it and give it a name. Like, but, actually, let's make it like yeah. precise instead of just yeah. in your brain, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, yeah. So uh, I, I do want to say we yeah. mentioned the 1918 paper. Um, I will put this in the show notes, but just in case people want to Google this right now, because I, you know, I've read this paper too. It's a great paper. Uh, it's a correlation between relatives on the supposition of Mendelian inheritance. So that's the paper that you're talking about, and those of us in this field or adjacent fields, we all we all know about that. Uh, so let's let's talk about let's talk about um, quantitative traits in general, right? Like so, just like a couple of things, and you guys can add, uh, you know, what I'm missing. So quantitative traits, obviously, what does that mean? Um, there are certain things that are associated with them right now, and I'm not saying this was all originally associated with them, but so polygenicity, right? So quantitative traits tend to be the outcome of action at many, many genes, right? Uh, many genetic positions. So when people think about genetics, a lot of us, uh, you know, they're originally trained on the Punnett square and a single locus and a dominant and recessive allele, these sorts of things. Well, I mean, that's still a thing in quantitative traits, but now sum it over hundreds of loci, right? Hundreds of genetic positions, possibly thousands of genetic positions. So, you know, we were discussion we had before we started recording between us we were like thinking about this i mean you said um james there's twelve thousand SNPs associated with height single nucleotide polymorphisms right within the genome that's that's a lot of positions um although you know there are millions and millions you know like five million six million SNPs in the average human genome but we'll, we'll go into those details so okay so there's a lot of genes not a single gene there's a lot of genes okay so there's not a gene for type 2 diabetes in most people there's a bunch of genes that affect your risk of having type 2 diabetes, or the odds of you developing type 2 diabetes. And, you know, as we're talking about agricultural stuff, uh, you were mentioning how quantitative genetics is really, um, the questions, that the, the topics that it's focused on. Today, complex traits and quantitative genetics, like in terms of disease, is a major, I mean, it's how you get funding, right? Were you saying something, James? No, I okay. Just I'm oh, sorry. Just like James, just like just give me this look, you know. Uh, heritability. You mentioned heritability, and so heritability colloquially uh, makes sense in terms of okay, from parent to offspring. But we're talking about something very specific here. Um, and there's different types of heritability. Heritability in the narrow sense. Heritability in the broad sense. A narrow sense has to do with additive genetic variance, which is the big deal in terms of a lot of what we're going to be talking about. But basically, it just means that what proportion of the variation in the population is due to variation in genes. And heritability is basically associated with the correlation between parent and offspring that's due to the genes, and that's why twin studies and other things work, because identical twins are obviously genetically pretty much the same, 
and uh, monozygotic twins, right? And then you have fraternal twins that are dizygotic that are genetically 50-50, and so if a trait is very heritable, there should be different patterns across these different uh, types of relationships, right? And we will talk more about exploring that with some of the work that you've been doing, uh, you know, that's very sophisticated using genomic methods, right? Um, another thing that I want to mention, uh, you know, the bell curve, uh, like that distribution, the Gaussian distribution, these quantitative traits are often, you know, they're either, you know, they either shake out as like pretty standard Gaussian distributions or I think like they're converted into some sort of Gaussian distribution. Uh, they tend to have extreme outliers, but there tends to be like a central tendency in there, and that might have to do with uh, like central limit theorem and whatnot. Maybe we'll get into that later. Um, and to give some examples, um, give some examples to people. Um, height. Height. Intelligence, um, also like traits where like a lot of um, traits like in late life diseases where you have a risk for something, mm. you can think of it as like a quantitative trait, right? Well, that's that, that's the thing though. It's that m most of the time we 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 will like to model things as if they are quantitative traits, even if they're not quantitative trait. It's really just defined at the phenotype level. It's like a continuously varying, quantitatively varying character like height. Uh, but if you think about a disease status, it's like either you have the disease or you don't. So how are you going to model that? Well, but, and, okay, but there are, and, different, and there are different levels of severity. No, sure. But let's just imagine, yeah. for the sake of argument, you, ha you either have a disease or you don't. Yeah. But such a, such a disease might actually be affected by thousands of different genetic variants. So it's not like there are simple Mendelian diseases like cystic fibro fibrosis yes. where... Either you have the if you have the gene, you have the disease, or you don't have the gene, you don't have the disease. Pretty much, pretty yeah. much. Maybe maybe there's some 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 qualifications that yeah. need to be made to that. Yeah. But um, for a lot of complex, what we call complex diseases, it's it's sort of like height in that there's thousands of different variants across the genome that can change your risk of say getting type two diabetes. And typically, what we uh -huh. what we do to model that is to say um, if you if you have so many of the risk-increasing variants compared to the risk-decreasing de variants that pushes you above some threshold, then you're going to have the disease. Yes. And maybe, actually, we should be measuring, you know, blood sugar or something. And yeah, really, yeah, it's yeah. a quantitative thing, but because of the nature of the medical yes. system, even if it's really at some fundamental biological level, it is a quantitative thing, we're often measuring it as if it's an either-or outcome. Yeah. yeah. And also... Since you're bringing that up, um, you know another thing. It's not true. Of, I mean, there are probably quantitative traits. It's not true, of, but most of it, most of them, I think there's kind of, there's an environmental component. Um, so when you're talking about cystic fibrosis, there's not an environmental component of cystic fibrosis. It's a genetic disease where I think you know you say the penetrance is 100, percent right? If you if you have like the mutations and you carry two copies, you're going to have some problems. Okay, like that's pretty much guaranteed. Now, type two diabetes. People have a risk for a type 2 diabetes, but that means it's not guaranteed, no matter what your genetic profile is, usually, right? And so what's going on there? Well, there's environmental factors. So, for example, like if you have a very high-sugar diet and you're obese, et cetera, et cetera, those are environmental factors. So when we're talking about heritability, the heritability has a non it assumes often a non-heritable component, right, which is due to the environment. And so, the you know, you know, obesogenic environments, you know, that's a, that's a term that's used, but obviously our rate of type 2 diabetes is way higher in a lot of populations today than it was in the past, but the genes are not that different, at least in the last century, 
right? And we know that risk for stuff like type 2 diabetes has been affected, you know, from ancient DNA. It has been affected by evolutionary processes. But really, it's just not been a major disease until relatively recently. But, but that, that brings up an important point about heritability because you can have en environmental factors that change over time and change the mean. So we see that, you know, the mean height has increased um, over the last, say, 200 years in yeah. developed Western countries. And that's probably primarily due to improved nutrition. But at any one point in time, a lot of the variation could be due to genes, even if over time there's a shift in the mean because of a changing yes. overall environment. If you want to listen to the rest of the podcast, including our discussion of Greg Clark's new paper on the heritability of social status, uh, you know where to subscribe. Thank you.